Welcome to It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. A look behind the curtain of global finance and monetary control with one of the foremost experts in the field. Author of the bestseller Web of Debt and the Public Bank Solution, Ellen Brown's groundbreaking work began the movement to create new American public banks. We'll look at issues surrounding the world of money and the systems and powers that control it, as well as the progress being made on the public banking frontier. The program is underwritten by Public Banking Associates, a national consultancy of experts advising government leaders pursuing the creation of their own public banks at publicbankingassociates.com. We have this uh, collusive arrangement between politics and finance, whereby the political power gets to spend beyond its tax revenues, and the financial power gets to control credit and lend money into circulation at interest. Actually, the only qualified issuers of money are producers of real value, because money should be a, a virtual representation of value that's in the market already available to be sold. But that's not the kind of system we have, and that's the kind of system we need to create. That's professor and author Tom Greco, our guest today on It's Our Money, describing how the hard outlines of our bank interest-driven monetary system dominates human affairs the world over. Hello, and welcome to It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. I'm Ellen's co-host and senior advisor to the Public Banking Institute, Walt McCree. Today, we're going to examine a fundamental aspect of our monetary system that has run its historical course to the edge of viability. That is, the interest-driven amassing of debt that is now so humongous that a great reset or some sort of jubilee forgiveness of debt needs to be figured or factored. When you consider that most of our money is created by private banks when they make loans at interest, and that that money needed for repayment of the interest is never created, you see that there is a logical impossibility that debt can ever be fully repaid, and that those who hold the strings to that debt are the inheritors of the Earth's financial power. Tom Greco proposes a new locally established value-based monetary system that skirts the problems of interest-bearing debt. Such evolutionary ideas of monetary systems are emerging in various forms across the world, and Tom Greco describes their underlying methodology. Later in the program, we complete Ellen's conversation with historian Matt Errett, discussing his second volume on The Clash of Two Americas, an in-depth recounting of the issues that have shaped our continent's political and economic development. Let's join Ellen's conversation with Tom Greco now. It's my pleasure to be speaking with Thomas Greco, a writer and lecturer who is regarded as one of the leading experts in monetary theory and history, credit clearing systems, and complementary currencies. Tom has written many articles and four books, the most recent of which is The End of Money and the Future of Civilization. He is also a former professor of business and has traveled all over the world lecturing, teaching, and advising. Uh, so, Tom, it's great to be talking to you again. <laughs> great to be back, Ellen. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you for um, inviting me. So, I heard you recently on a quite good podcast that I thought really or sorry, uh, PowerPoint that laid out quite well what our 
current issues are and some very interesting possible solutions. So I'll start out right the same way the PowerPoint started out. Um, what are the underlying causes of economic depressions and inflation? What's the problem we have right now with our current monetary system? Okay, well, the presentation that you refer to, uh, I gave last month uh, for the University of Hertfordshire in the United Kingdom. And I titled that slideshow, The End of Money, Interest and Debt, uh, which is something that uh, is hard for people to conceive because they've been so much a part of our experience for the last several hundred years. So basically what I tried to outline there was the basic problem that we're facing, which is an interest-based debt money system that is causing a growth imperative. Now, economists, they don't like to talk about redividing up the pie in a more equitable way. Uh, all they wanna talk about is if we grow the economy, we don't have to do any redistribution. Uh, everybody will be better off if the economy keeps growing. But of course, there are limits to growth and anything physical uh, or material, uh, nothing can keep growing forever eventually you reach some kind of limit. And we see examples in nature, uh, all kinds of examples, like uh, populations of a particular species uh, will grow somewhat to a point, and then you'll have a catastrophic collapse when they outrun their food supply or some other uh, environmental factor comes into play. So basically we have this growth imperative which we need to transcend. And the basis for the growth imperative is the kind of money system that we've been in, that we've been under uh, for the last 300 years at least. I trace it back uh, to the founding of the Bank of England in 1694. Actually, uh, central banking goes back earlier than that, but uh, the central bank of uh, the Bank of England was the model for central banks that have proliferated around the world uh, to this point. Uh, basically, the problem was that uh, the king, King William III, was fighting a war against France, and uh, he was unable to raise taxes sufficiently to continue to fight the war. So William Patterson and his cohorts came to the king and said, if you let us found the Bank of England, and lend banknotes into circulation at interest, we will make sure you get all the money you need to fight your war. So that's the Faustian bargain that was set back then and has been replicated in virtually every country around the world uh, from then to now. So we have this uh, collusive arrangement between politics and finance, whereby uh, the political power gets to spend beyond its tax revenues and uh, the financial power gets to control credit and lend money into circulation at interest. So actually the only qualified issuers of money are producers of real value because money should be a, a virtual representation of value that's in the market already available to be sold or soon to arrive in the market and ready to be sold. But that's not the kind of system we have and that's the kind of system we need to create. Uh, 
So we have this debt imperative. Um, when I tell people how money is created, they have a hard time accepting it because it's so simple. As John Kenneth Galbraith, the noted economist of the 20th century said, the way in which money is created is so simple that the mind is repelled. And uh, basically the way money is created is when banks making loans at interest, they make two entries on their books. They take, for example, your signature on a mortgage note, which is an asset to their uh, accounts, and they make a deposit to your account, which is a liability. So with two entries on their, on their ledger, uh, they've created money and they've created the basic uh, principle of the loan. But as time goes on, interest accrues on the loans. And of course, they didn't create the interest. So there's never enough money. The stock of money is never sufficient for everyone to repay what they owe to the banks. So that's why we've seen this continual uh, exponential expansion in debt in both the private sector and the public sector. And uh, it's just going astronomical, especially in the last decade or so. So what we have uh, is this debt growth imperative, which forces the borrower, borrowers, that's uh, all the players in the economy that take loans from the banks, it forces them to compete with one another in the marketplace to try to accumulate enough revenue to service both the principal and the interest that's due on their debts. So this is all outlined in the in the uh, PowerPoint that I uh, showed during that presentation you mentioned, and it's available for people to see and download on my website, beyondmoney.net. So we have this debt growth imperative, which leads to an economic growth imperative. And uh, of course, as I said, growth cannot continue forever in any uh, material sense of the word. So we had, back in the 1970s, a publication called The Limits to Growth, which was uh, basically sponsored by the Club of Rome. And some analysts, systems analysts, took a look at the situation and they said that we cannot continue to increase economic output, that is material output, indefinitely. We're reaching the limits of the planet uh, to sustain that kind of expansion in economic output and consumption. So that doesn't mean that we can't continue to develop, but it will be quantitative development rather than quantitative development. So when you think about the system and how it operates, uh, every country has a central bank, which is basically the gatekeeper for the uh, banking cartel, and it allocates the money creation power amongst the banks, the bank, amongst the members. But uh, even that has uh, no longer become operative. You, you may have continuing discussion about uh, legal reserves that banks have to have, but uh, reserves have long since uh, ceased to be a limiting factor in the creation of 
of bank money on the basis of debt. So the problem is more than economic, it's more than financial. Uh, the problem becomes political and social as well. On the sure. uh, limits to growth, <laughs> I, th- I just, just saw a podcast on um, uh, technology is growing so exponentially. I mean, you can use the same amount of resources that we have and feed a lot more people and make a lot more things because of technological development. But the problem is we've got like a $30 trillion debt in the U.S. that never gets paid off. Only the interest gets paid off. So it is that it's the debt that is unsustainable, but not actually the growth. I mean, if if you mean growth by growth, you mean um improve the ability to feed more people, house more people, or, you know, make more things or make better things, all that stuff. We still have a long way to go. Well, I don't believe that techno fixes are sufficient. We need to restructure uh, the financial system, particularly Well, he wasn't talking about a techno fix either. He was saying the problem is somewhere else. It's in the financial system, like you're saying. Yeah. So... Um, so we need to restructure the, the whole financial system to get rid of this debt growth imperative and get rid of this uh, economic growth imperative. And we can do that by uh, relocalizing control of credit. But I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. I wanted to continue my train of thought about uh, how finance, economics, politics, and social uh, controls all converge in a despotic uh, global system, which is the necessary ultimate outcome if they try to keep this this system going with this built-in growth imperative. And uh, we see how that's been developing uh, recently, increasing challenges to cherished Uh, civil rights and uh, basic tenets of our society that uh, our democratic democratic governments have been founded on. And uh, that is going to continue. When you look back to the 20th century, uh, we saw fascist governments rising in so many different places, Uh, Spain, Italy, Germany, and a few others, uh, Japan. Why did that happen? Well, it happened because people wanted things to be better, and they thought by centralized control, they could make them better. But that centralized control comes at the expense of basic human rights, basic freedoms that are enshrined in our Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And uh, we thought we defeated fascism at the end of World War II, but now we're seeing it's been slowly replicated in the so-called democracies, the Western democracies, as they've uh, converged and pulled together uh, to basically dominate the rest of the world. So we've seen the United States uh, particularly and NATO uh, along with it, go into one country after another illegally without any um, legal uh, justification to uh, create regime change. You know, we've done it in Somalia, Uh, We did it in Iraq. We tried to do it in Afghanistan. Uh, We've been trying to do it in Syria. Uh, We've been doing 
We've been doing it uh, in a different way in, in the Ukraine through co-optation and trying to install puppet government there. So, you know, what we're headed for is a global fascist uh, tyranny. And, and, we, and we actually use the World Bank and the IMF for that, which absolutely. capture them by debt, which is the same, absolutely. same issue. Well, that, that used to be the, uh, the way to go is to get every country uh, into the debt trap, which they could never get out of, and force them to produce uh, basic commodities for export to the uh, first world. And uh, it's just another way of uh, imperial exploitation. It's not direct political control, but it's economic financial control. So, you know, we have all of this uh, playing out over the last uh, several decades, and it's only going to get worse unless we put a stop to it. And uh, we don't have the political power at this point uh, to go up against the super class, as I call it, which is calling the shots. What we need to do is to uh, build new systems from the bottom up, community by community particularly starting with the exchange process. You know, money is said to serve three functions, medium of exchange, uh, means of savings, and measure of value. But that's not the case, really, when you think about it. Uh, you don't save by hoarding money. You save by investing it in some kind of uh, long-term asset like a, a bond or a a note or certificate of deposit, a savings deposit in a bank, or uh, an equity share in a corporation. So the savings function really is performed in a different way. And as far as the measure of value, we used to use precious metals, gold or silver, as a measure of value. But we have long since stopped using uh, commodities as value measures. And now the currencies measure themselves, which is really a, a non-functional non uh, approach to measuring value. The currency needs to be measured in terms of something objective, either a commodity or, as I've been suggesting, uh, a market basket of commodities that we use to define a unit of account. So uh, where are we at with that? Uh, over the last several decades, we've seen a number of initiatives to create local exchange systems. Uh, we had let systems. We had local currencies at the community level. Uh, we've had a long history of private currencies issued by producers of real value. Uh, we've had railway notes. I've proposed a uh, solar dollar based on the production and sale of renewable energy by electric utilities. Uh, we have uh, commercial trade exchanges, which do a process called credit clearing, where producers come together into an organization. They associate together and agree to pay each other, not with dollars or euros or pound or any other political currency, but pay each other by using uh, the products that they produce and sell. So basically in these circles, uh, your sales pay for your purchases. So now what we are trying to do is to uh, perfect those approaches and scale them up 
And in my presentation that you mentioned, uh, I did present a visionary piece called VITA, V-I-T-A, in which I described a system where we have small, relatively local credit clearing associations that are limited to maybe uh, two or 300 members that know each other and trust each other and are accustomed to doing business with one another on a regular basis. And we would build that system up in hierarchical fashion. This would be a, a natural system hierarchy where our local nodes would be associated into regional nodes and the regional nodes would be associated into uh, statewide nodes or continental nodes and uh, on up to the global level. So we might have four or five different layers in this natural system hierarchy where we have uh, credit that's controlled at the local level, but is globally useful. So if you wanna buy something from somebody in a foreign country, you could still do it using your local credit. And we work out the details of clearing um, behind the scenes. How, how would you compare these local currencies to each other? You still have a standard back, a basket of currencies and that's your measure or basket of goods and that's yeah. your measure of... Yeah. Well, ultimately, ultimately, we need to define an independent uh, standard of value. And as I said, my proposal has been to use a market basket of basic commodities that are commonly traded and uh, use that to define uh, a unit of account. But you know, in the interim, we can continue to use the uh, particular political currency units as measures of value. And when we cross national borders, uh, we can use the foreign exchange rates that are uh, determined by the foreign exchange markets. That's not ideal, but it, it'll work in the short run. Yeah, I, I've actually written about that too. And one, one advantage to the current um, digital system is the reviews like Amazon or in, you know product reviews and merchant reviews like on eBay. So you get all these people that, that will, you know, if you're not a trustworthy person, they'll quickly let everybody know. So, yeah. it's, you know, it's another means of uh, testing whether there's somebody you want to trade with. Yes, in, in, in these systems, uh, you would have uh, social scores, uh, you know, as we do now. If you go on uh, Amazon.com, as you mentioned, or Airbnb, on Airbnb, the hosts rate the guests and the guests rate the hosts. And they do it simultaneously before these ratings are posted. So, you know, the bad actors are quickly identified and, and weeded out or they correct their behavior. So we'll have that at the local level. And uh, with the small local nodes, uh, it's easy to help people correct their bad behavior uh, because if you're a part of my local node and uh, we know each other and you do something that isn't acceptable to the rest of the group, uh, we'll let you know about it pretty quickly and give you a chance to, to straighten up. So that's that's more ideal than trying to punish someone after the fact. I saw, I saw a proposal recently for a cryptocurrency 
currently, most cryptocurrencies are not backed by anything, but this would be a cryptocurrency backed by futures. So a group of farmers could form a food currency, for example, that was redeemable in the, at some time in the future for the crops or the, the produce that was produced by the money that came in from this currency. So yeah. people would be willing to trade it because it's like insurance against if we're going to have food shortages or if food prices are going to go way up, you can cash your, your food coins in for food at some future time. Right. Yeah, let, let's pursue that a little bit. Uh, you could organize a, a group of local farmers. And uh, some of us are trying to do that here where I live in Tucson. You could or organize a group of local farmers and have them jointly issue a farm currency. And uh, it could be crypto, it doesn't have to be. And uh, they could spend that into circulation by buying the things that they need uh, to produce their crops. Uh, they could perhaps pay their employees uh, to some degree with their farm currency. And they, of course, would accept that currency back in payment uh, for the farm produce uh, that they sell. So that's the reciprocity circuit that I talk about. Uh, currency is created when somebody spends it into circulation uh, and another provider accepts it in payment and it circulates any number of times in the community. But eventually when it comes back to the issuer, uh, it gets redeemed for real value, in this case, farm produce, and it gets extinguished. So the currency has a beginning and an end. It's created and it's extinguished. It's created by the act of spending and it's extinguished in the act of redemption, not in some other currency, but in goods and services that have been promised. Yeah, I, we're particularly interested, of course, we're all about public banking, local public banks. I know a state can't issue its own currency under the Constitution, but a city could. So, the, but the issue is, what would the city be issuing it against as what would be the collateral that you could cash in on with the currency? I know California try, tried to pay with warrants in 2008. And they didn't want to take them back in payment of taxes because that would cut into their future tax base. And that was well, that's, that's that's Reagan, that's reneging on a promise. I mean, you can't put an IOU out there and then refuse to uh, accept it back and redeem it. Well, uh, but it would be better if we had some actual good or service to redeem it in because we want to get more currency out there. If you're just taking people's taxes ahead of time, <laughs> then yeah, you're well, not actually getting more currency into the system. You, you made a point that it cuts into your uh, conventional money revenue. Yeah, well, that's true. But it also, by issuing it, you've cut down on your conventional money expenses. So it's a wash. But basically, a municipal government does provide services. Some of those uh, we voluntarily subscribe to and others we don't. In any case, we have to pay for them. So if a municipal government uh, wanted to issue its own currency, it could do so on the basis of its anticipated tax revenues. But it has to accept them back in payment for taxes and fees, uh, which are its revenue streams. You, you have uh, mentioned before what has gone wrong with community, community currencies have been tried for <laughs> decades, but they don't seem to get very far. And you've discussed what they've done wrong. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I made that point as well. Uh, why community currencies haven't had more impact? You know, for the last several decades, we've had uh, let systems springing up all over the world, particularly in the UK, Australia, New Zealand, a few in the US, but they no longer exist. Uh, some of them still continue in the UK and other places. And basically, uh, they do credit clearing, which is the effective means of uh, your goods that you sell paying for the things that you buy. But uh, with, with the case of Let's, it was not business-based. It was individuals who aren't in regular business of selling things that are in general demand. Uh, for a Let's system to thrive, it has to have a major participation of local business communities. As far as the uh, community currencies, the local currencies like Bristol pounds and Brixton pounds and so many others in the UK, uh, Salt Spring Island dollars and Toronto dollars in Canada and uh, the Berkshires in the United States. Uh, these are all sold for cash. So we're not gaining any independence from the existing system by requiring the existing cash, political money uh, to be used to bring them into circulation. Uh, a proper currency needs to be spent into circulation when it pays for real goods and services, uh, not when it's uh, accepted uh, for cash payment. So then we have uh, a supplemental medium of exchange that's apart from the uh, dysfunctional money and banking system that I described. So we need to do more of this. We need to spend local currencies into circulation. And that can be done by an individual business uh, during the Great Depression, this happened. Uh, one case that I mentioned in my book was Larson Merchandise Bonds, as they were called, one of many strip issues that were issued during the Great Depression. Uh, basically, the Larson Company, which had many retail outlets in the Buffalo, Niagara Falls region of New York State, what they did was they paid their employees in part with their merchandise bonds. And they also, I think, paid some of their suppliers with their merchandise bonds, which they would then accept back in payment for anything that they sold in one of their retail outlets. So that completed the reciprocity circuit. The Larson bonds were spent into circulation uh, when employees or suppliers accepted them in payment, and they were redeemed uh, when those people brought them back and bought something from the Larson company and Larson Company accepted their bonds back as payment. So this is the way a currency needs to be issued and redeemed by real producers of real value uh, who have something that's in general demand ready to be sold. And then for solving the interest problem, uh, it seems to me the interest does serve some useful purposes, but how, how would you you do want to be able to take out loans or advance an advance of credit in some way. And whoever is going to give you the advance, I mean, if it's private credit, they usually want some <laughs> something for taking that risk. Good point. Uh, Good point. How, how can we reward risk without using interest? Uh, first of all, let me mention that these credit clearing circles um, 
they allocate interest-free uh, interest lines of credit. When you belong to a commercial trade exchange, you get an interest-free line of credit according to your capacity to produce and sell value to the other members of the exchange. And uh, it's interest-free because this is the way business has traditionally been conducted. When a, when a merchant sells to another merchant, they will generally send the merchandise along with an invoice and give a certain amount of time to pay. And there's no interest involved in this line of credit. So we're just generalizing this interest-free credit uh, to all of the members in the trade exchange according to the amount of value that they bring uh, to the exchange and are ready to sell. So as far as the exchange process is concerned, uh, there doesn't need to be any interest uh, on exchange credit. Now, when it comes to long-term investments, that's another story. Uh, we could continue to do it with interest-bearing loans, or we could do it with non-interest-bearing loans. But if people are going to risk uh, their resources on a long-term basis, uh, they do deserve to get uh, some return for taking that risk. Well, how can we do that? But we already have a way of doing that by taking an equity share or part ownership. Now, when you buy a share of stock in a company, that's basically what you're doing. You're becoming a part owner. You have an equity share, uh, not a fixed dollar uh, claim against the company, as you would if you bought the company's bonds. So we can still reward uh, risk by providing uh, equity shares or shared revenue options. So that's the way I would handle long-term investment. Yeah, I, that would be similar to Sharia loans, but I remember right. talking to somebody in Malaysia who said, uh, the problem is that the lenders, <laughs> the creditors were, are in your business all the time. You know, they wanna control stuff. So there yeah, is well, that where if you're true. a stockholder, you don't really have any control unless you're BlackRock, of course, but most stockholders have no vote that's meaningful. Well, we're, we're talking about rebuilding the economy from the bottom up, community by community, uh, starting with small and medium-sized enterprises. So presumably you would know the people that you're investing in, the businesses that you're investing in. And uh, as far as uh, the problem you mentioned, it also extends to venture capitalists. You know, if you have a good idea, you want to start a business and you go to a venture capitalist, they want to basically be in there forever and they want to control what you do to make sure they get uh, the return that they want. What I'm seeing in the future is uh, equity investments that are limited in time. They would be temporary, not permanent. And once you get a reasonable return on your investment, you're out. You have to sell back that part of your interest uh, to the entrepreneur. So this is much more a friendly way of doing finance. And I think it's a friendlier way to create a society. Right now, because we've given capital so much power and we've allowed the accumulation of capital to an unlimited ex extent, by a few people uh, were being dominated by those who control capital. But in the system that I envision, we will not have that concentration of capital. 
capital will take its proper place alongside labor uh, as an equal partner, but not as a dominator. So this is the kind of thinking we have to engage in and the kind of systems we need to build. Yeah, that's great. And I think it's a, an idea whose time has come because there's so much interest right now in forming small communities. People are worried about food, et cetera. They want to they be local. Go local is a very popular concept today. Right. So yeah, so thank you very much. I think we've come to our end of our time, but it's been super talking to you. Great, enjoyed it a lot. Thanks, uh, Ellen, for giving you the opportunity. Uh, I hope I can you remind me what your website is? The website is beyondmoney.net. Right. Okay. Beyondmoney.net. Now, okay. uh, if you try to post that link on Facebook, they won't let you uh, for some strange reason. <laughs> but you can spell it out as I do beyond money as one word, then space, uh, then dot as another word, then another space, and net, N-E-T. <laughs> Okay, thank you. Uh, I've been speaking with Thomas Greco, uh, a writer and lecturer, author of many books and articles. The latest book is The End of Money and the Future of Civilization. Website is beyondmoney.net. <laughs> thank you. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Bye. It's clear that big changes are underway in fundamental aspects of our monetary and social systems. And considering there are many systemic dysfunctions, it's probably a good thing. Let's rejoin Ellen's conversation with historian Matt Arrett as they discuss how history has led us to this moment. Right now we have the Great Reset going on at the World Economic Forum, which obviously resets are something that they do mm. periodically when there's no way to deal with the debt. And right now it's the debt and the derivatives. So they have to start out somehow they have to reset the games. And uh, so that's what they're obviously up, up to. And it seems to me we're at the point where we have to come up with our own reset, you know, our people's, like you said about creating a vision or a model, I forgot the word, but anyway, a paradigm, we need to form our own paradigm. So what would, what do you propose for that? The, the beauty of history uh, is to is it gives you um, it's a real proof of principle scientific experiment. You know, there's there's theories that are tried, that are tested and you see what works or doesn't work. And that approach to history is what's been obscured from us. And it's like, no, looking at history from this other standpoint that I'm I'm trying to get at is actually though separated by many generations. It's this it's very similar principles that are, I would say, even the same principles um, of good versus bad ideas that work or don't work. And the, the, the real crisis sets in when people often try to say, well, um, without having properly studied their history, they just say, well, whatever happened in the past, I'm just going to try to create something new because everything that worked in the past, everything that happened in the past brought us to the, the present bad circumstances. So they couldn't be good. The idea of the sovereign nation state, one thing, again, the great reset crowd is devoutly hateful of the idea of the sovereign nation state. They want to say that that's an obsolete thing and that we have to get rid of to create one world institutions that really care about the people and care about nature. That's really what we want to do. And, you know, 
corporations and, and financial central banks, they're above the selfish localized interest of a nation state. They care about the global community and the global environment. And that's why we should give them the control, as you've written about in your in your works, and I've written a bit about this too. Uh, they should control the Amazon rainforest, and they could, should control the American farmlands, and they should control our quotas of how much we're allowed to breathe uh, you know, CO2 into the world, you know, they're, they're the ones who are responsible and should decide those things, not selfish nation states. Now, the reality is nation states are an instrument created by human beings as part of the freedom struggle to emancipate ourselves from empire. That's why we have sovereign nation states. And so to have a strong sovereign nation state is important as a weapon, because this, this thing controlling the great reset, you know, we see shadows of it with the great reset. It's very powerful. It's very centralized. It's, it's global and only a powerful weapon like the sovereign nation state can properly protect people and take away the, the, the ability of this parasite to keep its, its tentacles stuck into the host. So today, I mean, the right to emit productive credit through a national bank on a state and federal level, this is something that you've, you've educated your readers on for many years. And, and this is a very important principle. Everybody has the right to not pay illegitimate debts. There's such a thing as a legit debt. And if you took a legit debt, you're obliged to pay it. But if you've been uh, tricked into a usurious trap, no, you don't have to do it. If it was designed to keep you enslaved, which that's been the past 80 year experience, especially in the post-war age, is IMF, World Bank, you know, conditionality-laced loans, that were designed to destroy the means of producing wealth by the, the victim countries who were unfortunate enough to receive those types of loans with those conditionalities that said that we'll give you the money at these extremely high interest rates on the condition that you don't use it for building this hydroelectric dam on your country or using this to build something like, you know, tap into the oil or other mineral under your soil in Nigeria in any way that is going to benefit the quality of life of your people. If anything, we'll let you do it under the condition that a foreign corporation goes in, controls your oil reserves to export to our consumer markets, which is what Henry Kissinger put forth in his NSSM 200. So the United States and any country that wants to survive the coming storm, and it's going to get worse before it gets better, has to revive that process that people, every great American president was tapping into that within varying degrees. Um, there's and countries. The Chinese in the are actually tapping into it now with the Belt and Road Initiative, which is, yeah. you know, more or less modeled on the American system. I, you can go into that a bit. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, that's the punchline. So that's the sixth act. So my 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 book is divided into six acts, um, with about you know anywhere between five to nine chapters per act. And the last act, Act Six. Um, so Act. Act four is on, or Act five is on the recolonization of the United States after JFK was killed and his brother was killed. So, what happened from 1968 up until our present period, especially, and I, I spent a lot of time focusing on the 1970s um, as a point where the Trilateral Commission of Kissinger, David Rockefeller, Brzezinski was really taking control more and more of uh, America's banking policy. People like Paul Volcker was a member of that trilateral commission right and it was it was rewiring the us to break it break it away from its past better traditions and into this idea of a of a hegemon um that would be part of the anglo-american 
process of conquering the world and getting rid of all uh, multipolar ideas of foreign policy and economics and reducing everybody to one center of command above everyone else. That's what Zbigniew Brzezinski launched. Um, a lot of the neoconservatives that later took power under Bush uh, Jr., the monkey, um, these guys all came in under the Trilateral Commission sort of field of influence. And there was a little bit of pushback here and there in the 1980s. But overall, the process was degenerative. Um, so, and, it, and what I try to get across is that was all a re, an economic reconquest of the United States. That was not the United States acting in its own sovereign interest. That's why JFK and his brother were killed was because they were representing the actual sovereign interests. And this other thing came on. It was a coup. And people have to internalize that it was a coup. It wasn't something that happened 58 years ago. It's something that still is happening, even though people have come and come, you know, died along the way um, who were part of it. It's still a, a, a coup. And um, and today, yes. That, so chapter six is how the multipolar alliance being let that was really took form after 2013 when Xi Jinping announced the Belt and Road Initiative, but also when uh, Putin who people have been taught to hate and fear because there's a lot of, you know, people who listen to the media. That's just part of life. So anyway, it, it happens. But Russia and China have integrated their two systems to become the bedrocks along with Iran, which has now been brought in with a, a giant $400 billion deal finalized now to, to integrate itself as a, as, one, as a major ancient civilization into the multipolar alliance that has as its defining um policy, the Belt and Road Initiative, or the New Silk Road, that was what Xi Jinping unveiled in 2013. In 2015 is when Putin started with his military capabilities, which are more advanced than China's. China's good at building economic things, like they could build a bridge or a high-speed rail or anything very effectively, and they have a lot of economic sovereignty because they didn't give up their national banks, whereas we did. They, have, they actually have four major state banks that emit credit for 10 to 30-year projects, like their Move South Water North project, that thing is going to be finished in 2055. Um, that's a long-term thinking. We used to do that. We don't do that anymore. And that's also why there's now a, a big shifting right now in the Middle East. There's a hope for reconstruction in Syria, in Iraq, in, 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 in uh, Afghanistan, in Libya. There's, there's real hope because the Belt and Road Initiative is uh, coming through the Middle Eastern zone to connect east-west, but also throughout Africa, throughout the Arctic. Uh, as part of the Polar Silk Road, and it's being funded with an it's an alternative financial architecture, and it's open for invitation. That they've, I mean, the leaders they'll never tell you this on CNN or Fox News, but if you actually look at their speeches over the course of the last seven years, the leadership of Eurasia has invited on multiple occasions the West to stop this zero sum Hobbesian closed system thinking, and instead join this open system, non zero sum uh, process of cooperation and win-win cooperation, right? There's forms of economic activity that don't involve just one participant losing and the other one gaining by theft. <laughs> Believe it or not, there's actually a way of, of doing things economically where you can make billions of dollars or more by doing things that benefit all participants. Let's say building a new infrastructure system in Kenya or in Ethiopia, which is what's happening with, you know, the Chinese helping Ethiopia as a center of development of, of electrified rail and sanitation and education. It's all happening. And that's why Ethiopia is being targeted also by Washington for destabilization currently. And they, they want to make Ethiopia the new Libya 2.0. Um, 
So China is actually saying, no, let's put out the fires. Let's work to, to create a system like McKinley was doing when he was looking at international cooperation around South America, building rail from, from the United States all the way down through the Panama Canal, all, stretching all the way through South America as a driver for mass industrialization so that these countries could stand on their own two feet. That's what McKinley was doing. That's what FDR was doing. That's what JFK was doing with his allies like Kwame Nkrumah, um, who he was helping to build the the you know a great, the big dam on the uh, uh, Volta River in um, in Ghana, and many 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 people like that. And Bobby Kennedy was talking in those lines too. That's what he would have done had he become president. So yeah, at today though uh, most Americans would n- might walk into some cognitive dissonance on hearing us say this. Uh, the fact is that the with all of the problems, and there is there are deep state structures in both Russia and China. Okay, it's, we're not trying to say, I'm not trying to say that they're that they're that they're angels. I'm not saying that, but yes, they are actually reigning in their deep states. There, we in our case, like Soros, is not allowed to be in China. He can't operate anything in China since 1989. He's been banned. Whereas his open societies and everything else are all over um, our governments in official and non-official ways and academia. So they're actually picking up the torch that was dropped by the great American presidents of the past, and they don't want World War III. The country that is driving the military encirclement of Russia, China, that's fueling separatist movements through color revolutions, that's not Russia or China. That's that's the Anglo-American groupings here. That's, that's us. We got to clean up our backyard. And the best way to clean up our backyard, the best pathway to do that is by working with countries that want a future that have said we can do this all together we can build infrastructure in america together and and i would say that's the most efficient way if we're going to be able to get national banking again it's going to be by us eating some humble pie and cooperating with these countries that don't want war um so we're coming to about the end of our our time but um one thing i was really interested in was the whole limits to growth idea and lincoln said you know that only only man in, in, uh, many animals can work or labor, but only man improves his labor. In other words, the, the uh, Malthusian or eugenics approach is that we've got too many people because we're going to run out of supplies and stuff. But the but Lincoln's concept and the I think the American concept in general or whatever it's not necessarily American, but you know the the productive. The human concept that what's different about us is that we have these brains and these imaginations and this ability to figure the, you know, figure more efficient ways to use the resources we have or to find more efficient forms of energy, et cetera, that that it's a matter of having faith in our own human or humanity, whatever. I don't know. Do you want to talk about that a bit? Oh, that's beautifful. Inspirational here. (laughs) Oh, no, you're great, Ellen. You're great. No, that's exactly it. I mean, that's the, you said it well. And yeah, the, the whole, when you, when you really read uh, some of these speeches, like, like what you just cited, Lincoln's discoveries and inventions, he thought that that was his, his, that's his favorite speech from, uh, I think it was 1858. And uh, yeah, it's very clear when you, when you look at the terms of the battle that was being waged, even then it was whether, how do you define human beings? Because the, the economic system, we're the only creature that creates laws, uh, economic laws, political laws, cultural law. Like we create rules and inter- 
it, when you put them all together, it, we call it a system. It's an invisible sphere that shapes us. It's tied to our culture. Um, animals, they're totally defined by their, their uh, hereditary impulses, the material conditions of the biosphere of their ecosystem that they're born into. That is going to determine the every other animal species, their limits will be that, you know, and at a certain point, if there's a drought, the, the rabbit, the mommy rabbits are going to eat their baby rabbits and, and we're not going to put them in, in prison for that. That's just the way that nature works. You know, it's not good or bad. It's, it's devoid of that, that quality of morality. Um, but it, it, it's fine the way it is, you know, um, it's, it's, it's a precious thing, nature, but when I'll you try to, huh? I just, this way. um, do you know the book, the origins of consciousness and the breakdown of the bicameral mind? No. no, I don't. Probably not. Well, so it's a Duke professor, but he said that so animals are actually behaving based on the subconscious. You know, they just it's just instinct. So they do it there or even fear or whatever. It's a it's a subconscious drive. Hmm. And so um, he, so he takes it back to the, the difference between the Iliad and the Odyssey. So in the Iliad, the hero always had the God by his side and the God told him what to do and he did it. And then in the Odyssey, the, the God is gone and it's this, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me type thing. And so in the Odyssey, the hero has to make his own decisions. So that's what it, I saw some other, I forget who, but anyway, saying that what it is to be human versus AI, for example, what it is to be human is that we make our own choices and we decide which way we're going to go. And exactly. um, so. <laughs> well, yeah, no, that's exactly it. Yeah. We're a creature of free will and, and we have a conscience. We can free will. So, that's it. Yes. Yeah, like that, that allows us to improve our system and we can choose to live by unnatural systems. You know, a bird might, it's like thinking of a bird that is convinced that it's a fish. And for a while it might behave like a fish, but if it doesn't realize sooner than later that it's wrong and get, back out there and learn how to fly again, it'll drown. Things are not going to go well. It'll, it'll be less capable of, you know, being happy as time progresses. And it's sort of like that with human beings. You could say that, yeah, the laws of the jungle are, are what defines us. It's pure selfishness, the ability of the, the weaker to, to, or the, the ability of the stronger to suppress the, the weaker and, 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 uh, you know, race for diminishing returns in a fight for survival or something. You could say that, and for a while, you could impose that onto the human system, that, I, that ideology that defines all of your, your other elements of the system. And just like that bird, over time, people will become more miserable, more depressed, all sorts of bad symptoms will happen. And unless you can get to the heart of the problem, which is that we're actually made in the image of a divine creative force, and that like what, this is what Lincoln firmly understood, that we're the only creature to improve our craftsmanship. The beaver makes a dam. It's industrious, but it's the same dam today that it was building 5,000 years same ago. Dam, dam. Yeah. Same dam, dam. And, uh, and so we can improve our, our dams. We can improve our technologies. We can even leap to new resources that didn't exist when we're discovering principles of the universe. We could translate that metaphorically uh, through, you know, whether you want in science through, a, a, through symbolic language like math or even through music uh, or painting. Th these are forms of invoking and awakening a certain set of insights about what we are when it's done well. And in, and the effect is we can improve and self-perfect ever more perfectly, which was understood when you look at the American 
constitution, right? The idea of a more perfect union would be a logical absurdity for somebody who thinks like a pure computer. Like, how can you be more and perfect? Either you're more of something or you're perfect. It's a fixed state or something that's changing. And no, the founding fathers didn't have that problem. They, they understood that it's a more, per, we're a perfectible species with no end. And to the degree that we are tuning ourselves to the laws of nature, we're going to be better. Empires, the parasite will have less fertile soil to stick its its tentacles in, you know, and uh, and empires know this too. There's a cultural war. And that's, that's I think, more important even than the, the financial, military, political aspects of our, of analysis. It's the cultural war, which is the heart and soul of the species. Um, so that's there too. And I try to, I, in there's act four, I try to get at the uh, uh, cultural intermezzo in my book. Um, so hopefully people like the book and yeah, the open versus closed system idea, that's everything. It really gets you at the idea of either we're a Malthusian beast that's going to adapt in a social Darwinian or, or eugenics type of structure of the rule of the, the might makes right. Um, or we are something more like Lincoln believed and, and, and I think understood as a, a creature always, that's more than the sum of our parts. And because of that, we can always leap outside of beyond our limits to growth by being moral enough to make discoveries. And also to translate those discoveries to the overall productive process to sustain not only more people, but at a higher quality of life. And in so doing, also improve nature. So usually we're told either you're going to have more people or you're going to have better nature. But you can't have both. I would say, and Lincoln was right, you can have both. And we're more, you know, natural and happier when we do that. And empires don't want us to think so. Thanks. I've been speaking with Matthew Eretz, editor-in-chief of the Canadian Patriot Review, co-founder of the Montreal-based Rising Tide Foundation. His latest book is The Clash of Two Americas, Volume 2, The Unfinished Symphony. And I believe your website is canadianpatriot.org. That's it. Okay. (laughs) Thanks, Matt. Hey, thank you. Well, that's it for this edition of It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. Our thanks to our guests, our sponsor, Public Banking Associates, and to you for listening. Be sure to check out Ellen's latest writings on the economy and the changing world of money by visiting ellenbrown.com. And for more information on public banking, visit publicbankinginstitute.org. For information on how local and state government leaders can obtain professional insight and counsel about public banks from key national experts, visit publicbankingassociates.com. I'm Walt McCree. See you next time on It's Our Money with Ellen Brown.